Kia ora and welcome to Insight. I'm Philippa Tolley. This week, women and pay equity. Recent figures indicate the gender wage gap has narrowed, but does that mean employers are valuing women more? The settlement that gave 55,000 care and support workers pay increases may be the springboard to address the persistent gender wage gap, but is it going to be enough? Behind our planes is the work of scientists, engineers, mechanics. Work that goes to the making of the Royal New Zealand Air Force. Work that backs the daring and courage of the men who fly our planes. Work that is done by skilled and unskilled men. And women. In 1942, women's work, according to a documentary about the Women's Auxiliary Air Force by the National Film Unit, was typing, sewing and looking after the home. Before the war, looking after the house, whether one's own or someone else's, was the main employment for most women. The Otago University historian Barbara Brooks says as the idea of individualised work developed over the 19th century, domestic servants were very much in demand. People came from backgrounds where they were used to being able to hire young women to help with childcare or help with cleaning. So what is women's work now? Economist Prue Hyman says there are still men's jobs and women's jobs, although that line is getting blurred. Women are in almost everything these days to a small extent. More and more industries are trying to tackle that segregation and in turn wondering how to address the gender wage gap. Men earn more on average than women. The more interesting question gets into the reasons for that. And many people, from care workers to female rugby players, are asking for women's pay to increase. There's between 5 and $7 an hour difference in the pay. Mm. As members of the Women's Auxiliary Air Force, we are doing our share. I'm Megan Whelan, and in this insight, we'll look at women's work in 2017 and whether that work is being paid fairly. Some of us just stayed at home. It's the end of June, and at a Chinese restaurant, a group of women is celebrating. After a five-year fight, 55,000 care and support workers got their first pay packets with hard-won pay rises. The mainly female workforce argued through three courts and a year of tough negotiations to get pay increases ranging from 15 to 49 per cent. In 2013, Christine Bartlett, a professional caregiver, successfully argued in the employment court that her low hourly pay rate was a result of gender discrimination under the Equal Pay Act. The government negotiated a $2 billion settlement and passed legislation to bring in the wage increases. The care workers are the first to cross the line in their fight for equal pay, but workers in other industries seen as low paid and dominated by women are lining up to take the field. Christine Bartlett is adamant the fight was worth it. If I'm out of this world knowing I've done something good for women, I am just the happiest girl on this earth, honestly. I'm happy for 55000 and I, next year it's going to be 150000 undervalued, low-pay woman. For Mrs Bartlett's colleagues, the money is more than welcome and means they can look to spending on more than life's necessities. They talk new glasses, saving, doing up the house and taking trips to see family overseas. Tamara Baddeley has been working as a care worker for 17 years. She got a $7 an hour pay rise, meaning she'll be able to actually work a five-day week and might be able to take an evening off from one of her two jobs. Well, it's going to mean that when the car needs work, I don't have to try and find the money or work out some sort of repayment deal with my mechanic and I can actually afford to have it done 
there and then, or possibly actually start saving, because every time I get some money saved, it goes on something, car rego or warrant or maintenance or service or, yeah, other bills that come through. A Wellington care worker, Sa Naidu, believes it's about seeing the work she does values. The health success is very, very low pay, even if you're registered nurse. For me, with my role at where I am, I'm just living where, you know. And then sometimes it's just do it. You love your job. You value your job. You value those residents that you've been care Simone O'Connor has been working in the industry for seven years and believes new people will be attracted to work as a caregiver. Well, this is actually creating a new career path. That's how I see it. So um, that maybe we uh, we get some younger ones on board as well and that this whole job is, you know, we, we finally get valued for the work we're doing. Even, you know, registered nurses, we need each other. So they, they can't do their job without us and we can't do their job without them. So um, for us, it's... It's a great achievement and, as I say, we, we feel valued now and I think you go to work as a, with a much more positive feeling and um, different attitude. Thousands of community mental health workers are already taking legal action to try and win pay parity with their colleagues in the disability and aged care sectors. For the Equal Opportunities Commissioner, Jackie Blue, the carer's settlement should create a domino effect. She says first out of the blocks will be the work that's government-funded, like teacher aides, those working with vulnerable children, and admin staff at district health boards. Then it's going to domino into the private sector, where you've got women dominating in low-paid areas such as cleaning. And if the PSA is successful, or if the government agrees to accept mixed occupations where women are in, uh, in the occupations which are low-paid but may not necessarily dominate, and I hope they do that, I hope they future-proof the legislation so we've got that scenario looked after, it's going to domino right through to the private sector. Most of that work falls into the category of low pay. Jackie Blue argues that's an indication of how women's work has been systematically undervalued. Otago University's Barbara Brooks says in the 19th and early 20th century there were huge demands for domestic servants because the colonists were used to having people help with the childcare or the cleaning. They brought out uh, young women in the hope that they would fulfil these roles and generally they quickly got married because there were more uh, male settlers than women. Uh, But of course uh, they continued doing that kind of work in their married life. So um, that work in the home was very important for women and domestic service remains the main employment of women up until the late 1930s. Māori women, though, weren't keen. Māori women were quite resistant to any kind of domestic service. And I record um, an instance where Māori women had sent their daughters to a mission school and came and found them doing housework and said, you know, we don't want them to be slaves and took them away. So they, you know, because there was a a hierarchy within Māori society, they didn't want their daughters doing that kind of domestic work. From 1894, New Zealand was governed by the Arbitration Act, which set the number of women in each industry and their pay, something Barbara Brooks describes as an elaborate structure that limited women's opportunities. Women couldn't be apprentices except in hairdressing until the 1920s and in the 1970s there were only a handful of women in industries like horticulture, engineering and the motor trades. Some of us have been training as radio operators. 
By the 1980s, the catchphrase was, girls can do anything, as the then Labour Department tried to promote wider job horizons for girls and women and to identify and promote training and employment opportunities in non-traditional areas of work. In 2017, according to research produced by the Ministry for Women, men are more likely to be managers, trades workers, machinery operators or labourers. Women are more likely to be professionals, community and personal service workers or in administration roles. There are also significant differences for the majority of industries. Manufacturing and construction, for example, appear to be male-dominated, while retail, trade and education and trading appear to be female-dominated sectors. Please scan and bag your items. The retail and finance secretary for First Union, Maxine Gay, says women are assumed to have innate caring and service skills. All of that work has been low paid, it's hard, it requires skill, even though at first blush you look at it and you think, well, that can't be difficult. But when you start to unpack the skill, the effort, the responsibility, the requirements of the job, you begin to realise that there's a whole lot more that's sitting behind that work. She says in Auckland, the overwhelming majority of supermarket workers are Māori and Pacifica women, as are laundry workers and the few jobs that remain in the textile industry. She says they are hugely low paid and many work more than one job. Often it's very difficult for particularly Pacifica women to get advancement within any of those industries. I think there's two reasons. One is the prejudice. I mean, I just think it's just, you can't deny that. And the other is that people are obliging. And so often they're doing multiple different jobs so they're not developing expertise in one because they're moving around multiple departments. So there's always a little bit of a a multi-skilling is really de-skilling. Figures from Statistics New Zealand show women were paid 9.4% less than men in June 2017, down from a 12% gap the previous year. While the drop is the biggest change since the statistics were first recorded in 1998, the gap is not at its all-time low of 9.1% in 2012, and there's no consistent downward trend. The figures are much worse for Māori, Pacifica and Asian women. A study by Mortu Economic and Public Policy Research, an independent economic institute, recently found that lower-paid industries account for only 7% of the wage gap. A Mortu researcher, Isabel Sin, looked at the value of women's and men's contributions to a profit-oriented employer. So we find that the value of the contribution that women are making is actually, it actually seems pretty similar to the value of the contribution that men are making. But if we look within an industry, a man and a woman who are you know, making similar contributions, the woman is paid about 84% of what the man is being paid. The research found there was a 16% pay gap for women aged 25 to 39, a 21% gap for those aged 40 to 54, and a 49% gap for older women. The gap in wages for the same productivity was also higher for employees who have worked at the same firm for longer and was particularly marked in a few industries. The gap was over 40% in finance and insurance, telecommunications and transport. And Isabel Sin says her research indicates the recent drop in the gender wage gap makes sense. We find that the gender wage gap tends to be smaller when firms are having trouble getting skilled workers. Um, And at the moment our unemployment rate is pretty low. So... 
I don't want to be pessimistic, but it could be that economic conditions are, you know, just in a place where the gender wage gap is likely to go up and when economic conditions worsen, which they will at some point, then the, the wage gap may go back up. And we have seen that in the past, that it was lower in the early 2000s, I want to say. Yeah, it does. the graph in my head and it's <laughs> gone back up since. Yeah, it has gone down and up. It does tend to fluctuate a reasonable amount. Dr Eric Crampton, the chief economist with the New Zealand Initiative, a think tank formed out of the merger of Business New Zealand and the New Zealand Institute, says it's really hard to get good answers on a firm's productivity and the wages it pays. He cites research by US economist Claudia Golden looking at very high-paid professions, lawyers and accountants, for example, which shows that the people who get the big money are the ones who can be available 80 hours a week. He says for those businesses, often people want to deal with the same person all the time, so the people who can accommodate that are the ones who are in demand. Somebody who's willing to put in 50 or 60 or 70 hours a week earns way more in terms of an hourly wage rate than someone who's putting in 30 or 40 hours a week. So that was what she came to as an explanation for the gender wage gap in American data, that more men than women, for whatever reason, are willing to put in what I consider to be stupidly long hours. Or are able to put in. That, yeah. Sure, yeah. sure. More men than women will put in the stupidly long hours, and that drives some of the wage gap. Now, there'll be other parts of it that are well explained by other factors. So what Golden was looking at is what's left unexplained after we correct for a lot, a lot of other differences that we already know exist. Women take disproportionately more time out of the workforce during childbearing, even if you put in fairly gender-neutral policies, and that ends up turning into differences in experience. And employers then wait experience, and a wage gap starts opening up. He points to other research, also using US data, looking at whether employers are reluctant to hire women they think might go on maternity leave and its associated costs. They found the data appeared to confirm that employers were hiring in order to avoid paying maternity leave. It's terrible that employers would be doing this, but if we're trying to think about appropriate policy for dealing with the gender wage gap, then we start thinking about what could we be doing to make it easier for employers to accommodate parental leave so that they're not trying to avoid having to do it. Uh, when we moved to New Zealand, we, we were very worried about that because we were both professionals. Uh, I came into a tenured appointment at the University of Canterbury. My wife was on the job market and... It takes a little while for new migrants to break into the job market here, and we thought that one of the reasons might be, in her case, that employers saw the spouse of someone who was a full-time academic and thought, well, she's going to be going into maternity very quickly. I don't want to have to deal with this. So she started just saying in interviews, I promise I won't have a kid for five years. Research from Statistics New Zealand in 2016 found there's a so-called motherhood penalty. An analysis of household labour force survey earnings data found an overall gender pay gap of about 11%, even after adjusting for occupation, industry and age. Researchers then found the gender pay gap was greater for parents than for non-parents, and women with children are paid disproportionately less than men with children. They put the motherhood penalty at around 12%. Historian Barbara Brooks says as more and more women entered the workplace, no thought was given to how the working week plays out for two working parents. Part of the campaign for equality and equal opportunity was to get women into occupations, but it didn't 
question the structure of those occupations, and it was still based on a male model, mm. someone who had no responsibilities at home, who you know could leave in the morning and come back at night, read the paper and eat dinner. But now everyone's worn ragged by both working long hours and trying to fit everything else around that. And still, women do the majority of housework. In fact, for many women, girls can do anything has become girls have to do everything. The 2009 Time Use survey showed that men and women spent similar amounts of time on productive activities, about nearly seven hours. Productive activities include work, household chores, child and family care, purchasing goods and services and community services. But while men were paid for most of their time, about 63%, women were unpaid for most of their time, about 65%. The split has changed very little since 1998. She was talking to mm-hmm. us, not mm-hmm. above us. That was a very good speech. What can we do to make you Secretary General? There have been eight men over these last 70 years, and there's never been a woman. The UN has got a serious gender problem. That's something that's very much on the mind of two of the most well-known women of New Zealand's film industry, both of whom have films out this month. Miranda Harcourt and Gaylene Preston have both made films telling women's stories, one about Helen Clark and one based on a Margaret Mahi novel. In 1985, when we released Mr Wrong, I was one of the 8% of female helmers, I think Variety calls it, of the world who had films in cinemas that year. Wow. I'm told this year, Miranda, you and I are part of 7%. (laughs) If you spend your life cleaning up after people, if you spend your life wandering around with a clipboard, if you spend your life making lists for other people to do, and, and, and the camera's the best fun, and there's a great scrum around it, It's not personal. It's just the guys are really enthusiastic around the camera and nobody would have thought to make room for you. Yeah. And anyway, you're not in their game. And you are um, disabled by your abilities in other areas, which are often abilities that um, that tend to be around organisation. I'm not saying you, I'm saying women. Yeah. That um, tend to be around um, things like household management. And luckily for you, and also luckily for me, I'm terrible at that. For more than 20 years, more New Zealand women have graduated from law school than men. In fact, in 2013, nearly 62% of new admissions were women, up from a touch over 26% in 1980. But women are still wildly underrepresented in the upper echelons of the legal world in both the public and private sectors. Less than 25% of partners at the country's 10 largest law firms are women. Of the 125 Queen's Council in 2015, just 21 were female. 70% of our judges are male. And while female lawyers outnumber men in nearly every area of the public sector, the one area that bucks that trend is at the very top among chief legal advisers. The dean of Otago University's law school is Mark Henehan. He says a variety of factors contribute to this, including persisting expectations that women will raise children, a fraternal streak running through the profession, and the long hours demanded of lawyers in their 20s and 30s, which are wholly incompatible with raising a family. It is staggering when you see the figures uh, coming through, and, and I think most of many of us thought it would have changed more by now, but it, it seems to be the slowest area to change. I know, to be fair to the large firms, they are 
doing a lot more about diversity programs and trying to do more, but, but it's not, actually not happening on the ground. The, the figures just don't show that. I mean, I've been into law firms and say, why, why are people hanging around? In fact, I was talking to some young people the other day who were working in, in a firm, and, and I was saying, why don't you get in early? Get in early and get your work done and you can get home at a reasonable time. Oh, no, it's not good to come in early because it's better to be here a bit later because it looks like you're really putting the hours in. I thought, this is just ridiculous. <laughs> Some firms are trying to do the work to attract a more diverse workforce. Joan Withers is an independent director and the chair of the warehouse group and energy firm Mercury. She says it's not just about equity and fairness, but pragmatic. No one is encouraging women to take on more leadership or encouraging more flexible work out of a sense of philanthropy. The evidence is irrefutable in that if you have a more diverse group of people making decisions, the the business is going to thrive. If you're not availing yourself of the total talent pool, then then your performance is is potentially going to be suboptimal. There are initiatives in train where, like the Champions for Change, where they are trying to seed that message in uh, for those dinosaur companies who, for whatever reason, don't buy into what seems to be just blinding obvious. Joan Withers says the Care Workers Settlement has started to address some of the issues, but there are three areas for women to keep an eye on. Not just at the top level and saying, well, you know, what is it across the organisation? Is there any disparity in terms of what men or women are paid? But actually going in and doing much more granular analysis. So I chair the warehouse, for example, and we're doing work at the moment. So we look at it across a whole range of things. So the median hourly rate for employees by brand, we look at salaried employees, we look at store management specifically, support office, and then we look at the ratio of gender by pay band. And that really gives us some very clear insights into where there are problem areas and where there is inequity, and then you can start to address it. The General Manager of Human Resources for ANZ Bank, Felicity Evans, is sick of having to explain why the bank has implemented the measures it has. Each interviewing panel at ANZ must include men and women, and both genders must also feature on the shortlist for every job. The bank allows every job to be flexible, offers 18 weeks paid parental leave and two weeks family leave to both mothers and fathers, and also pays the employer contribution on superannuation during parental leave. The company's management is 41.5% women, up significantly from just a few years ago. We're monitoring everything. We monitor the number of women that have progressed through through into management roles. Recruitment, internal promotions, resignations, redundancies. So the whole flow, and we're tracking, have we, are we biased one way or another? Have we, have we slipped one way further than the other? And then we segment that down into particular areas, into geographies, into line manager, to particular line managers, particular projects, particular business units. So we can actually be really quite uh, prescriptive and we can be... Um, very detailed and where are these areas or where are these gaps or where are some problems or some opportunities that we may have as well. Research from the Ministry for Women earlier this year found that 80% of the gender pay gap was unexplained. It defines the unexplained portion of the gap as unconscious and conscious bias and differences in behaviours and choices between men and women. The Equal Opportunities Commissioner Jackie Blue says overcoming those biases is difficult. It comes back to like chooses like. When you've got an all-male interview panel and um, they are interviewing a female candidate or have a number of different options, one might be a woman, 
or none might be a woman, they will choose people they feel comfortable with, and that's usually other white men as a generalisation. So it's just powerful biases that play massive. And um, people who say, oh, quotas won't work because you just bring through inferior women, uh, really fail to acknowledge the fact there are really serious biases going on. But feminist economist Prue Hyman cautions against simply calling it sexism. The different jobs that women actually do, particularly at detailed level, that's a big part of the explanation. It's not as much pure sexism, whatever pure sexism is, I think, as those studies show, because they don't look at occupation. And if you just say it's sexism, well, it's horrible, but, you know, then you can say, oh, well, government can't, legislate away sexism, so it'll just educate and so on. So I think it's important to analyse it in a bit more detail and say, OK, the valuation of occupations, particularly female-dominated ones, is a large part of it, then, and an awful lot of that is public sector funded, then that does bring it back to being a very important government responsibility. One measure introduced to Parliament in the last term but voted down is to force companies to release their gender statistics. Jackie Blue is a fan of that approach, but ANZ's Felicity Evans isn't so sure. I'd start with the woman in management, because I actually think that's the key. So I think you start publicly reporting those, and that shows for other candidates and that shows for other organisations, is that somewhere I want to be aligned to? Do they support the values around gender equality that I want to be part of? So therefore you attract more people to you as well, the right sort of people. And economist Eric Crampton warns, whatever the measure, against unintended consequences. If you move to a system where a bureaucrat in Wellington is having to guess, well, is this role really comparable to that other role? And I've never worked in either role, and I've never tried to hire anybody into either of these roles, and I don't really know um, how many workers there are out there who are able to do either of these kinds of jobs. But I'm going to pronounce that this role is equivalent to that role and that they should be paid the same. That's how we get back to what well, we were in the 1970s. That's yes. how we get back to national awards. National awards, basically central labour market planning. Um, and we're seeing that already in the consequences of the, um, of the wage settlement, right? Because they did it for one class of care workers and not for another. And entirely predictably, you're going to get a flow of workers from the less paid one to the more highly paid one. But for unionist Maxine Gay, as well as raising women's pay, the care workers' case has given others hope that equal work will be recognised with equal pay. But she says the disparities exist. What happens with a retail assistant, for example? So a retail assistant in a supermarket, you know, irrespective of the chain that they work for, essentially takes goods from the dock area that arrive. They take the, um, you know, the pallets into the into the supermarket. They take the boxes off the pallets, and they either put the box or the or the goods that are inside the box on the shelf. Now you go over to the distribution centre where those boxes came from in the first place, a worker in a distribution centre, you know, goes to a shelf, takes down a box, puts it on a pallet, takes it to the dock, that then goes on a truck and goes to the supermarket. There's between five and seven dollars an hour difference in the pay. Hmm. The distribution centre is male dominated, the supermarket is female dominated. And as much as the money for care worker Tamara Badley, it's the recognition that their work women's work is worthwhile that's important. Because for many years it was, well if you don't like it why don't you get a real job? You don't have a real job. You're not doing a real job.
The gender pay gap is complicated. It's not just discrimination, that would be easier to identify. It's a mixture of factors, but it won't go away if people pretend it's not there. Call Megan Whelan a ho, and that's Insight for this week. You can share and podcast this and other insights from rnz.co.nz slash insight, or head to iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That programme was produced by me, Philippa Tolley, with technical production by Phil Benge. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at insight at radionz.co.nz, or our Twitter handle is at insightrnz. It's been great to have you with us, and thanks for listening.